millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. The Premier League is suffering a collective hangover. You know how it goes. Did I really do that? Did anyone notice? Well, they did. Manchester United and Liverpool are at sixes and sevens. Great line, that, but it's not mine. I have to credit a friend of the show, Ian Ridley, for coming up with it. There are so many imponderables. The effect of the pandemic on squads, the physical impact of a congested calendar, the psychological influence of a lack of crowds. We're left looking for clues from a small sample size. I suppose the obvious question is, Migs, will this unique season have an unusual outcome? Well, I suppose the inclination is always to expect it to level out. But I don't think that's going to be the case. I think there's just... There's too many ingre- too many factors that have been causing this wild start to the season and these wild swings. And at the very least, I think you could say that the ingredients are in place for maybe the most unlikely season since 2015-16. And while that was mostly unlikely at the very top, this could potentially have similar results right down the table. There's, ba- there's the best chance of an upset or a series of upsets since then for certain. Is there a pattern emerging here amongst all the chaos, Glenn? If you think about it, Leicester scoring five at Manchester City, Spurs six at Manchester United, Villa seven against Liverpool. Is there a collective inability to defend in the Premier League? I think one of the factors in this is the lack of a proper pre-season. I mean, I noticed last night Ralph Hasenhutl was saying about basically they'd only had two weeks together. You know, with the the sort of the delay and the restart and then a, a tiny break really before restarting the season. They haven't really had a proper pre-season. And whilst it is much easier to coach defending than patterns of play for attack, that still takes time. It still takes time in the training ground, drilling your back four and so on. And we've ended up in a situation whereby particularly where clubs have integrated new players or attempting to integrate new players. And of course, it's no longer... Defending is no longer about the back four. It's also about the midfield. It's also about how the forwards press and so on. So when you're drilling a defensive side now, you're basically trying to drill the whole side at once. And that does take time. And I think at the moment, there is an area whereby teams are easy to get at because they're not fixed in that way that they'd normally be. They're not so they're not so aware of each other and their and their positioning on the field and so on. I think that's caused a big issue. That might that should change as the season goes on. But for the big clubs in particular, the season is now so congested. I mean Spurs like a playing pretty much all the time. It's difficult to see when a manager can have time on the training ground to do that. Yeah, and you've got international football thrown into that mix as well, I suppose. To be specific, Migs, you know, that Liverpool defeat was mind-boggling. I, I can't see on what planet they concede seven goals. But let's look at Manchester United first, if we could. You know, they've declined into incoherence. Is that more significant than the Liverpool defeat, you think? Yeah, because I mean, put bluntly, I think that the Liverpool defeat is much more of a freak result. Whereas with Manchester United, well, maybe the exact extent of the defeat is partly to do with the wildness of the situation and the broader context. I do think a result as uncomfortable as that was coming, or a performance as uncomfortable as that, should I say, and it's reflective of wider issues, which is, I mean, I've said repeatedly in this podcast before, Solskjaer is not really up to it. So I, I think that's what that exposes. And it, it, it did feel like it was just one of those days where a series of different issues that I'm bubbling away all came together for that kind of display that should be a landmark moment. But from the looks of the way the club is run and what's going to happen, it won't be. It'll they'll just kind of persist on in that in this attritional way they've been doing. But I, 
I, I think they've been given a not perfect opportunity, but you know, they've been given the opportunity to basically make a, make a, what what should be a usually significant managerial change. I still can't, I can't believe they're persisting with this experiment, which is essentially based on emotion, while you have a manager like Pochettino who's available and absolutely proven would want the job. And, and it's only, I mean, it's not even just about Pochettino. He, he's just one of many, 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 many managers who would be better than Solskjaer. But they're going to persist. And in, in that sense, while, while I was watching the Liverpool match and you're kind of like, well, this, this, is, this is incredible. How is this happening? With the Manchester United match, right, the extent of the... When it got to 5-1, 6-1, that is eye-opening. But that they were being beaten that easily beforehand isn't. Yeah, I, you know, I take your point about the limitations of, of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But, Glenn, is it right just to focus the attention on him completely? Because there are obvious systemic faults there. You've only got to look at the, you know, the carnage that's going on in terms of their recruitment. No, I'd agree with that to, to a large extent in that the the previous managers who were very different to Solskjaer haven't been any better either. I mean, the one thing I would say about the Solskjaer, I mean, it's one thing giving um, Perlo the Juventus job where basically it's not much to do, just a slight tinkering. I mean, they've won eight championships on the trot. It's another thing entirely to give a relatively experienced manager this massive overhaul task that's required at Manchester United. So, but then again, as you say, look at the recruitment. But quite a lot of the recruitment, I mean, yeah, some of those players have been bought by Solskjaer yeah, recently. Several of the players who were playing yesterday. Yeah, and he has spent some money. And there's all the, I mean, Wayne Rooney's piece was very good yesterday, I thought, in the Sunday Times. Yeah, looking at what they need is a proper centre forward rather than someone who's basically a slight upgrade on Mason Greenwood. And it's quite clear they need more recruits in other areas, like maybe shielding midfield or defensive midfielder. So why the fascination of Jordan Sancho when they've already got Rashford and Greenwood and Martial, who are very similar players in many respects? Mm. And if you look at the, you know, the nature of the players that, you know, they are trying to bring in. Edinson Cavani, is he typical, Migs, of a, a pretty haphazard, ego-driven approach? Here's someone who's 33, he won't play every game, he'll be on £200,000 a week, and he's had no takers for you know for several months. Well, uh, the one thing I would say, I think the, the lack of takers has been more down to the demands his agent, who is his brother, has set. One story I heard at the weekend was that when they were talking to Inter Miami, the agent fee we requested was $10 million. So which I think that's why a lot of clubs have been put off. I'm not sure whether Manchester United are paying that much. I don't think they are, but I'd imagine it, 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 it's quite high. And it is just a sense, they went on a big push the last year by kind of you know putting across the message that, you know, how structured the recruitment was. And that's all fair enough. But then you see that message and then you see situations like this where it almost feels like Cavani is an opportunity and they're almost being forced to take it because they haven't done business elsewhere. Now, I do think that Monday could be an active day, at least trying to get deals done. They've wanted a a wide forward, obviously, and we'll probably have Tellez and Cavani come in. But had you been told that at the start of the summer that it was going to end up like this, <laughs> you, 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 basically you would have expected much better. Yeah, and you know, even when they have spent money, you've got to look at how wisely that money has been spent. You know, that back four cost nearly two hundred million pounds yesterday. What about Harry Maguire? I've never seen any defender make such a sequence of. You know, unbelievable errors in in you know one of those Tottenham goals. I lost count on which one it was now. When you think about it, has he been influenced? You think, Glenn, by what's gone on elsewhere with you know the legal case and everything else? It can't help, can it? I mean, um, having that hanging over your head, and obviously you know found guilty, then appealed, so it goes back and starts again. But that's going to be hanging over him for some time, and it will obviously affect his preparations at the start of the season. And that can't help. And then you come into a team that's not playing particularly well. You're not getting much protection in front of you. I mean, that that goal when he basically you know, made two mistakes and then he hauled down Shaw as Shaw was trying to clear, it smacks of a confused mind. I mean, I think Harry Maguire in the right team with the right players around him, as he's shown with England at times, is a very good player. But yeah, he does need the right protection around him in terms of his lack of pace. Plus, he just needs a team that's got a bit more structure. I mean, I think sometimes yeah, we forget these guys are generally in their 20s, you know, 
they're quite a lot younger. And I mean, whilst calmness and composure and so sort of, sort of they mark out the great players. I mean, it's, when things are going badly wrong and you're only in your twenties, you can suddenly lose your head a bit. And certainly, United defensively looked as if they completely lost their heads. I mean, the goal where I think it was it Bailey passed it to Maguire right in the middle of the D when he surrounded by Tottenham players and they're just a man sent off. Are you looking at it thinking, what earth is he doing? That wouldn't happen on a Sunday morning. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned there, Glenn, didn't you? You know, Luke Shaw, should he have gone long ago? Probably. I mean, hey, you've got to find someone who's going to take him and then you've got to find someone better to replace him. I mean, I very much admire the way he came back and put himself back into the team after the problems he had under Mourinho. And obviously there was a player there once until he had that terrible injury. I mean, it's clear, yeah, there is a player there, and there's a lot of spirit there. And he was he was the one who fronted up yesterday, which says, which says something for him as a character. But equally, like all these clubs, you you always need an upgrade if you're going to ship someone out. You need an upgrade, and yeah, obviously there are upgrades. I mean, there's a lot of you know, very very good fullbacks in England at the moment. A lot of them are English, but sometimes when you're looking to buy, I mean, if they had a better buying structure, you would imagine you probably would have done for a club like Manchester United. Yes, is it Christ Migs of almost the wrong type of culture within the club is you know should we be looking a little bit more deeply than just individual errors or catastrophic team performances what does that signify in a deeper sense well i mean it's it, i think when there's that many individual problems and that many bad individual performances it's not down to the individuals really it's down to a system or a collective issue because it, it almost it forces these these problems and yeah absolutely I mean, I, this this was this was put to me repeatedly over the last few years. When kind of in, in many many pieces doing kind of analysing what's going on at Manchester United. But one of the biggest problems articulated to me was basically if you look at what we say the model clubs right now, which Liverpool, well, up to about two years ago would have been events, so they're they're going to their own kind of identity issue right now. But what what these clubs initially do is the starting point for everything is they articulate exactly what sort of identity they want to have and everything and of course to make a decision like that to come to an identity you basically have a really thorough football structure in place with you know the best minds in the business now the big question of Manchester United is they don't have that football structure hence we're in a situation where they have Solskjaer as manager and have made some of the decisions they have and of course we've had this back and forth about whether they're going to appoint a director of football or not which is also indicative of that kind of that lack of cohesive culture uh, yeah, and I, I think that's just reflective of the issue. And it's, it's, it's why, until they appoint that figure, be it as a director of football or if, say, they got a manager in a Klopp mould, who was really in a, Fer, in a Ferguson mould, as someone who kind of has this authority over the club in general, even if you don't quite have the structure in place, then we're going to see continued problems. We, 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 should, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the Glazer ownership of Manchester United remains one of football's great tragedies. I mean, it, it, it should never have been allowed to happen that the club was allowed to be purchased in that manner. And even in a broader sense, there's just this, it, 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 it's unsettling for those of us who love football that a club can be, especially a club like that, can be can be can be used in that in that way, which is which is essentially where some sort of profit making. Is attempted to run in, along the lines of, sorry, alongside trying to run a football team. But even within that context, United are still capable of spending so much money, as we've seen from the wage bill, as we've seen the transfer market, that, I mean, because it's, it's the ultimate rule in football, basically. It, it, it's, it, I mean, it's simplistic, but it's true. The more you spend, the higher wage bill, the much better chance you have a success. It's something with the highest correlation in the game. A manager can still do well with that context. Even Mourinho got over 80 points and there were enough questions about Mourinho despite yesterday, which which is why I, st- I still think, even in as, as problematic as all it is, with the right appointment, United can still succeed. Mm. What about Jose Mourinho, Glenn? We've given him quite a bit of tap on this programme for a few weeks, but this week has been... You know, uniquely daunting. Four games in in eight days. They sailed through it. He needs a lot of credit being paid to him, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, someone said, um, "Well, they've already got thirteen goals in October, and we're October the fifth, which is pretty good going." <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been quite interesting. I mean, I've been watching everyone else who watched the um, All or Nothing, and I mean, you see various sides of Mourinho. I, I do feel that he is not the manager he was at his peak, but it does, you know, and. 
you know, his football, the way he plays the game is a bit dated in the way the modern game is now played. But he does, there are signs he's adapting. I mean, yeah, also, if you do get like a forward line of Bale, Kane and Son, that is a very, very good forward line. And when you look at the way Marino tends to play, you know, keep it tight and you know, try and nick something up to a point. I mean, obviously, yesterday they played very, very well against a team that were in pieces and they and they were very ruthless about the way they dealt with it. And he's, he's quite good at spotting those areas. I mean, he's, but he's quite interesting. You know, what's the point? It's very much about sort of Keeping it tight. And the game is now, though, he's very much played on the transitions. I mean, one of the things watching the game yesterday, I mean, the speed in which teams can transfer from defence into attack these days, yeah. Yeah, and we're not just talking about the top teams. We've got most teams in the division now. I mean, West Ham, Aston Villa, not teams we'd necessarily associate with top six. Yeah, you lose a ball in a certain area, there's a very high chance you're going to concede a goal. And um, so, therefore, having a sort of a half a mind on the sort of keeping things defensively. And a lot of, I mean, the Man City-Leeds game was a great game. There were a lot of tactical fouls in that game when teams were the opportunity because it was so open. There's lots of little, let's just break it up, let's just break it up in the halfway line stuff. Quite a lot of that was going on, unsurprisingly, given the managers. So the speed of transitions, you're thinking maybe what the way Marino plays, if he gets a good enough set of forwards in front of him who can make the most of what might be most games limited chances, yeah, that will work up to a point. We have to concentrate on recruitment to a degree, Meath, because it's transfer deadline day. Is it significant that, that Man United was shown up by Spurs given their respective recruitment records? You can say, probably could make a case for Spurs almost winning this this window simply because, you know, there'd probably be more last-minute arm twisting to come. You've got Carlos Vinicius coming in. Only a 2.7 million loan fee if it doesn't work out. They're getting rid of a few surplus players, Sessignon, Foyth. There's a broader picture here and Spurs are doing doing it right, aren't they? Well, it's quite remarkable, especially if you if you look at the issues in recruitment they had throughout the entire Pochettino tenure. And maybe that's one thing that would that would reflect not as well as Pochettino and maybe raise questions whether some of some of the faded recruitment down to him rather than Daniel Levy. Because Mourinho has he's basically he's persuaded Levy to spend. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really striking that, and all the more so given the year it's in with all the COVID restrictions. I mean, someone put it to me the other day, connected to Spurs. That if you if you look at the kind of almost the strategy and what Mourinho did, one of the, one of the first things he did this summer was basically all the young players like Parrot and Skip were loaned out, which immediately makes the squad look more threadbare. And you know, almost you know, subtly increases the pressure to get more signings in. I, I I'd, always, I'd always be very wary of the phrase "winning the transfer window" now because I think we've had it, we've had that a lot over the last few years. And when it's happened, if you, Everton being the classic example last year, winning the transfer window can often mean very little in terms of actually winning football matches in the season. So I don't think you can make that judgment, but until we've had a campaign, really. But uh, on the surface, I think they've signed well. They've addressed. Oh, issues in the squad and I mean to, to be fair to Mourinho it's probably it's probably his most decisive window in the sense of you know for forensic addressing of issues in his team since Chelsea 2014 when he won the title and I don't think he's going to win the title this season but I suppose he would argue that you know he, he can look back to his best when he, when he has uh, the recruitment he wants Mm. What about Liverpool, Glenn? It was their worst defeat since they conceded five to Manchester City three years ago. Is that as simple as the absence of Alisson? And uh, Henderson. I don't know if Fabinho was playing. I mean, this wasn't a team with uh, one new player, I guess, Hodge, I'd say, it isn't a team that's trying to reintegrate you know, new players or get back to playing. It, was, it did look to me like they were specifically trying to target behind Alexander-Arnold Quite early in the game, I was watching with my son. This is before anyone scored. My son was saying, where's Arnold playing? Where's Trent playing? Is he in midfield today? We look at the TV trying to work out if they've literally done something really weird with formation. At one point, he's out in the left wing. And I wonder whether Klopp was just trying to, you know, take up a level, trying to do something different with the, what he's using his full-backs at one point. But Villa were clearly targeting the space behind the full-backs, in particular behind where he is. I know Grealish plays out there anyway most of the time, so Villa automatically tend to play to the left. So you do wonder me, every team, you know, people go spend time looking at them, working out how can we beat them. You know, the, the high line they're playing, you know, if you've got quick forwards, then maybe you can get into those gaps and they weren't pressing as hard at the pitch, putting so much pressure on passing as maybe you need to if you're going to play that high. I mean, there was an element of luck. Adrian gives them the first goal. Three shots are deflected. 
but Villa certainly could have scored more goals. And once a, a team, but what I did feel watching the game, even at four-one at five-two, that you always thought if Liverpool scored the next goal, they could come back. I never felt that watching Manchester United. So there's the sense that they have got so much attacking power. But at the end, it was just it's just a weird game. And Villa looked like scoring constantly. It's almost like that commitment to try and get the goals back was leaving more and more spaces for Liverpool and yeah, more and more opportunities for Villa. And Villa obviously playing extremely well with great confidence. I mean, they, they do look at side transformed. Dean Dingsbury has done a very well game there in the market and staying up last year. And then they look like they really kicked on this season. Yeah. Are they, are they also targeting, do you think, Migs, Joe Gomez? You know, you look at it, they've already conceded a third of the goals they let in last season. And it does seem to be a sort of narrative emerging that, OK, you can get at Liverpool because you can get at Gomez. Yeah, it's, I suppose it, it, it's, quite, it's always been quite a, a basic striker tactic. I mean, the, the, the centre-forward are always going to gravitate to what he would see, the more vulnerable centre-half. And this is, this is almost taking that, you know, very basic approach to the next level. Well, I think what was what was so striking about the game as well is that it wasn't just like they were kind of you know, taking advantage of Liverpool errors or you know get, getting these kind of freakish goals. It was the same thing over and over again in that they were absolutely sluicing through Liverpool. They could really have got ten purely from just the amount of times that Liverpool's high line was just left completely exposed. Of course, there's a connected issue with the confidence in Adrian there, which is why apparently today Liverpool have been looking at Gazanaga from Spurs. But but yeah, but yeah, definitely. And I suppose this is it's it's one of the reasons why I think we we would have argued that Liverpool didn't need signings this summer just to refresh things because the danger after two three years at absolutely top form. I mean, one is always at a certain staleness of the Flicks team, but the other then is that people now are fully used to what you, they know well what you do, and it's easier to pick out potential fault lines that can be exploited. And that's what Villa did superbly, and it's, it's testament to Smith in that way. And, and just as regards Villa, actually, it's amazing what what a kind of sliding doors moment last season might have been, because they were so close to going down after a season where they often looked maybe not Premier League level. There have been huge questions of recruitment. And now they've gone from that to looking like, I suppose, closer to what Villa should be, which is, you know, potential mid-table team right now with suddenly a lot more quality in the squad, as we saw yesterday. Yeah, you know, that was a transformative performance, I think, just in terms of confidence, Glenn. What about the potential of that sort of Grealish-Barkley link? And also, dwell, if you could please, on the broader issue raised by the success of uh, Ollie Watkins. The quality is out there in the Football League, isn't it? Very much so. I mean, he was at Exeter. He's playing non, I mean, non-league. He was originally Exeter, so had come through. And I mean, um, there were one or two players out there who had good performances of the weekend who had come from, you know, Vardy, obviously. He didn't play well this weekend, but long way back. I'm just trying to think there's someone else out there who's also, oh, Mikel Antonio. He played in Tooting Mitchum. That's where he started out at. So we took him well below the Football League in some cases. Yes, these players are coming through, um, or at least the quality is there. And this is a clear area where the manager has some influence on the signings because he had Watkins at Brentford. And therefore, I think one of the things for teams that just get promoted for the playoffs, it's always harder because they, they lose two or three weeks of recruitment. And clearly they weren't that good a side anyway because they come up for the playoffs. So that team will always be most likely of the three promoted teams to struggle when they come up. But if they can stay up, you know, a club like Villa with their history and their, their money and so on, they then have a chance to really sort of kick on and push on. It has been a big performance then. And I do like, I mean, Barkley, must be when I first saw Barkley, I thought, well, are he and Greedy's not going to be too similar? They both like to carry the ball, they both run the ball. But, you know, they worked brilliantly yesterday. You know, good, intelligent players. Barkley's obviously got a point to prove. Indeed, you could argue bringing Barkley in after his experience at Chelsea is a good way of Villa showing to Grealish that you, you don't maybe leave him. It's not such a good idea. You know, stay here, be the main man. You know, look what happened to this guy. And now he's come here. And they do like a very good combination. And there's almost like an intuitive link between them. And yes, they kept finding each other. And it, it takes a bit of the pressure off Grealish as well. So far, you know, Villa... They've always been looking to try and give him the ball and oppositions know if you can stop Greenish playing, you can stop Villa attacking. Now suddenly there's another player who they've got to look at who's very good at the ball and can score goals is another crucial aspect. You know I mean, a couple of times you sort of thought, well, maybe he's taken on shots when he shouldn't have done. But then he scores for a, a shot where maybe there's a better option. So I do think that they're looking like they could be a good side this year. 
Yeah, Everton, best start since 1969, uh, when they actually won the league by nine points from uh, from Leeds. It's also the first time they've won their first seven games in all competitions for 126 years. Do you see the hand of Carlo Ancelotti in all this? A little bit. I do think, uh, as with the season as a whole, I think there's a few factors coming together. And it, 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 there's still that slight sense. We've seen this with clubs in the in the past, I think it's famously happened with Tottenham where just through what is a feel-good summer, sorry, a feel-good recruitment process, and because you've got that buzz, especially from a player coming in like James, it does create that just that bit of momentum about a place. I'll be, without wishing to take that away from Everton or Ancelotti, I'd be more interested into what this all means as to when they suffer a setback and what they do there. I think that's where we'll get a real grasp of what they're about, because at the moment it feels like it's, it almost feels like they're a little bit kind of surfing the waves at the moment, and I, when that stops, that's when we'll, I think we'll, we'll see the real evidence. It's why I still withhold a little bit of judgment on them. And I, I mean, I, I would have had questions about Ancelotti in the past as well. Even when he was at his peak, there was always that kind of relative question about the uh, his league record and that he should have won more titles given the size of the clubs he was at and it was always the argument that he was more of a cup manager because just the way the way he coached suited the mentality of cups more he said there was a fairly especially if you, if you talk to people at Bayern Munich and the way he coached there compared to some of the other managers they have there have been questions about just how far he's fallen off or fallen away from what would be the cutting edge of the game so I think there are there are fair questions about Ancelotti in that regard, but it's also possible this situation suits him. Managing James Rodriguez certainly suits him. They seem to have what what looks a very productive relationship. And then I mean the other side is connected to the potential wildness of this season. If 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 they're a rare club where everyone feels content. And there's a degree of satisfaction that could go a long way this year in in a season where there's going to be so much instability and so much dysfunction. They could be one. They could be one of the upwardly mobile sides, ready to take advantage of that. Mm, yeah, when we talk about momentum, you know, there's a collective momentum which obviously they're they're experiencing at the moment. There's individual momentum in terms of you know Dominic Calvert Lewin nine goals in six games. But there's also a ne- negative connotation, isn't there, Glenn? Jordan Pickford, for instance, eleven errors that have led to goals since Everton since he made his Everton debut in 2017. Surely he can't retain his England place, can he? No, you wouldn't have thought so. I mean, it is difficult. I mean, he looks like he needs a spell out the firing line. I mean, obviously we know he's a good goalkeeper, but clearly he's struggling for confidence, and some of his play look quite panicky at the weekend. And but the problem is Everton, even more than Liverpool, haven't got much in reserve in terms of goalkeeper cover. So yeah, they're they're a little bit in a in a bind there, at Everton. But clearly Southgate has got more options. So of course um, Pope also made a bad error at the weekend with his feet with his footwork. Bad timing that was for him. With three games, you would have thought that he can experiment a little bit. Maybe give Sales a game for the Wales game to start with, settle them in. You could argue, I mean, if he plays your England and has two really good games, then that might rebuild his confidence just getting away from um, the Everton setup. But he's not playing, playing particularly well for Everton. And of course, Calvert Loon is opposite. I mean, and there's another player who started off in the lower divisions. I mean, Sheffield United, when he was there, was a League One club. And he went on loan into the conference at one point, Stalybridge Celtic. So, yeah, you, you mentioned before about the players out there, and they are out there, and it does tie in with this whole situation now what will happen to all these clubs? Do the Premier League have a duty to support them or not? I'm inclined to think a lot of Premier League clubs, particularly the ones with American owners, will look at the NFL and say, well, why do we need all these other divisions? You know, I had slight sympathy for Steve Parrish's piece yesterday. When you look at there are clubs in the Championship who are wealthier than Crystal Palace, whose owners are wealthier than Crystal Palace's owners, why should we subsidise those? But clearly there's clubs lower down League One, League Two, who are, you know, barely got a pot, as they say. Mm. The argument would be, though, if you don't have that supply line, would all these players, the Calvert-Lewins, the Mikel Antonis, would they really be picked up through the academy system, which basically picks up kids when they're like 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, and then if you suddenly come through when you're 15, 16, where would you play? So I think there is a there is a, a profit need to keep those clubs in place for the Premier League as well as a, a moral one. Mm. Let's look at Leeds, Migs, if we could. That starting team against Manchester City was acquired for a total of £48 million. 
they look to be identifiable Bielsa types, don't they? A lot of energy, a lot of ambition, relentlessness. What are the limits of Leeds' potential this season, do you think? Well, uh, in a normal season, you would think it would have stopped maybe just outside of the European season, just outside of the European places. But given this season... (laughs) 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 Well, there there are limits. They're not going to be winning the title or anything like that or or probably getting into the Champions League. But again, there could be that rare opportunity for them to maybe do more than would be expected. And I think... I mean, you you point to the kind of the, the value of the team there, but this is this is also one of the things that's almost been forgotten about with, with Bielsa, and I, I'm I became overlooked in the kind of argument about whether whether his seasons burn out too quickly. I mean, so even even in that first season when they failed to get promotion, that that was that was a that was a team that what when he took over they were bang mid table in the championship, and so there's still there's still even the questions. I mean, if you if if this if, if this is all in level playing field without the effective managers, the this this squad, bar a few of the new recruits, is potentially still kind of at best and top top half mid table championship squad, which points to the effect of his management and also the um, the clear effect of of, of of clear coaching in that way, or a clarity of message, a clarity of approach. Yeah, it was it was fascinating to watch that game in terms of just almost through the prism of both coaches. With Guardiola, he's had his first look at Diaz at the back. Mendy does seem to be a liability, doesn't he, Glenn? Is there a lack of consistency and perhaps intensity in City's play at the moment? I think with both teams, you could say that massive high-energy game is only sustainable over a certain amount of time. I mean, it was... It was notable. I mean, um, Leeds obviously did go up last year and didn't have um, a burnout. But of course, they did have a two-month break when there weren't any matches, which came at a good time for Leeds. And when they came back, they were all fresh. So this season, of course, the Premier League has got eight matches less than the uh, Championship. So it might actually be easier to maintain that intensity in the Premier League as long as you don't go wearing the Cups and on better pitches generally than it would be in the Championship. Again, with Guardiola, I mean... You wonder how, how, for how many years you can keep going to a world of getting players to press very high and press fast all over the pitch with you know, similar groups of players. And at what point it becomes players either switch off or just become physically drained. And again, with that question about his defending, you, there is an argument. Defending now is very hard work. It used to be, you know, you stop the opposition, you know, and, and get rid of the ball. Now you're supposed to stop the opposition, you know, build attacks, join attacks, get back. Fullback in particular, I mean, Mendy obviously had that very bad injury. Fullback has become a really high intensity position where you require to be a good attacker and a good defender and full of energy. And it's a tough position to keep maintaining at the highest level for a long time. And as we've seen, it's, it's quite difficult to find top players in those positions, you know, enough of them to go around for all the top clubs. Yeah, Chelsea have their own defensive issues as well, don't they, Migs? You were there on Saturday. What do you think is an acceptable time frame to judge them? I think, I would actually say relatively soon, because I, I think the, it's a fair demand this season for them to be challenging for the title. Not necessarily win it, but they should be absolutely challenged. They should be in the mix. And I think we'll know whether they will be relatively soon. But also, I think it comes down to how they're playing as well, in a sense of progress. And that was actually one of the concerns. I mean, despite the fact that they won four 0 on Saturday, it was one of my concerns actually watching the game. In that, there's still that sense that Lampard hasn't figured figured out who of these many attackers is going to be best in what position. And and Werner seemed a classic case of that. I mean, I, I think Werner actually offers an interesting example. In that, I think one of the hallmarks of his. Uh, of his admittedly brief Chelsea career so far, is that he spent a lot of time kind of running around, almost making aimless runs, as if trying to figure out where to go. And it did get me thinking, I mean, from everything we hear about how Leipzig are coached, and especially how Nagelsmann works, he he would have had instructions for every single situation. That's, that's how supremely drilled Leipzig are. Where he's coming to a Chelsea where it does, certainly going forward, it feels much more laissez-faire. And I, I think one of the big themes of this season is how Lampard configures this array of attackers and what his best approach is going to be. Because when you, when you spend that much on, a, on an attack line this talented to go with the players that were already there, you know, I think you probably need a bit of spectacle 
And, and, and Saturday, I mean, as, as, as healthy as a 4 0 win, it was. It was quite odd. None, none of the goals came from any sort of constructive play. They came from, you know, a Sacco mistake, a, a very kind of, you know, standard cross and a header, and then two penalties. Mm. You've got, um, I suppose, to look at what isn't there, I suppose. How can Frank Lampard know his best team when you know, key elements, Zayic, for instance, aren't involved? They've obviously missed the balance that uh, Pulisic would provide. He doesn't have much time, though, does he, uh, Glenn? No, you never have much time at Chelsea, even if you're a club legend. It is difficult. I mean, I must, must admit, I do wonder quite where he's going to fit all those players in. I mean, Werner has spent much of, much of the week weekend game on the on left wing. I can't see him as left winger, but I can't see how he can play Werner and Abraham and Havertz all in the same team. Because Werner can either play behind Abraham or he can play ahead of Havertz. So, you, you know, I guess when Pulisic comes back, that will provide a bit of balance. Then we've got Zayas to fit in as well. I mean, it's ironic. You've got almost the same situation with the Chelsea women's team where you've got Harder and Kerr and G, yeah, and, Eng- and England and uh, Wrighton. You've got, again, a clutch of brilliant attacking players. But how on earth do you get them all into the same team? Mm. I suppose one of the aspects of uh, this window has been players acting as scouts. You think about West Ham, Migs. You've got Suchek, who recommends... Kufal, his old Slavia Prague teammate, who actually fitted in perfectly. You know, he had a great debut against Leicester, didn't he? Yeah, and apparently it was quite key. Even I remember, we actually wrote in the summer that um, Sujek had been in his, in his ear about West Ham as well. I mean, a little bit of interest. Yeah, I, I watched him when they play when Czech Republic played England and beat them this time last year, and he impressed then. And I mean, West Ham are actually they're a club. To be fair, that. The recruitment often comes in for a fair bit of questioning, certainly about how it leaves the balance of the of the squad. But this does seem to be one player who perfectly fits and has that kind of. Also, he seems from from what we've seen so far and what you hear about him, he seems that sort of personality type of defender that David Moyes likes as well. Yeah, well, certainly when you think about it, West Ham fans were talking about having no points from seven games and they've had terrific wins over Wolves and Leicester and they were pretty unfortunate against Arsenal. Arsenal beat Sheffield United yesterday, Glenn. They're discovering how hard it is to stabilise in the Premier League, aren't they? I think we've seen a lot of this in the past. I mean, you go back to Reading, for example, when they came and Ipswich. I mean, teams that have a great first season. You come up with that momentum, particularly if you come up in the automatic places. And you're winning and you're confident and everything's fresh. The opposition doesn't necessarily work you out. And then you have to do it all over again. And it's harder the second time. The opposition have worked out a little bit. Maybe you've had to bring in one or two players who don't quite have the same team spirit, the same same knit, the same camaraderie in the side. And then the first you haven't, you've got slightly less momentum. The first couple of results don't go so well, and all of a sudden you're struggling. You're looking for a win. You're looking for a few points. You're looking up the table instead of down the table, and it does become much harder. That second season is often very hard for for teams of um, middling of middle sized resources. Yeah. Were you surprised, Migs, that Liverpool let Rian Brewster go? OK, they got £23.5 for him. Or does that just conform to Liverpool's model, which is, you know, they've raised about £100 million from Academy products over the last four years. Again, do you think he was, uh, he, he really perhaps could have been better served by staying at Anfield? No, no, I'm not surprised. I, I, and I think it's actually, it's a good decision. And what makes it also a good decision for Liverpool is ultimately that buyback option. And just, I mean, to touch on something we've already spoken about there as regards to the football pyramid, but if we if we are to see, and God forbid, drastic changes to the structure of the game in that way, this could be the increasing outlet for for young players, especially when that pathway is suddenly blocked because they're not quite ready enough. I mean, I mean, like we we know the way football has gone. It's it's the big the big academies that now hoover up the majority of the talent, but often without necessarily being able to give them the opportunity to then make the best of that talent. And so it does feel mm. a potential solution to that is not just loans, but selling players with buybacks. So that way. The like clubs like Liverpool and players like Bruce, they'll get the benefit of him being able to develop as a player with regular first team football in the Premier in, in the top division as well. But the club themselves 
don't lose out or as we've as we've seen repeatedly say with, with situations like Kevin De Bruyne which with Chelsea say where they make kind of a hasty decision on a young player the, the buyback kind of gives gives them that cushion and so it, it does feel like almost I don't want to say a more sophisticated loan but but the, the buyback means that they, they can still claim all the benefits of it even if they have to pay a little bit more but paying that is almost worth it so you don't lose a player who has an abundance of talent but needs maybe that that final step of development that a big club can't, can't necessarily give him. It's a bit like in reverse what happened with Ramsdale and that Sheffield United sold him to um, Bournemouth then got promoted to join Bournemouth and sort of swapped places almost and and then he's gone back. I mean, the one interesting thing about the buyback option, as Miguel says, it's a sophisticated loan in a way, but Brewster will be able to play against Liverpool this season. Barkley scored against them, but he can't play against Chelsea's parent club. Harrison scored against them, but wasn't able to play against Manchester City, his parent club. I mean, the whole thing about loaning lots of players out and then they can't play against you is a real can of worms in some respects. Yeah. Do you think um, another element to the way this game is, is, is in transition is, you know, the increasing reticence of Premier League managers to releasing players? for international duty you know you've got players as we speak flying all over the world with the attendant health worries about that why in that context glenn do you think that england have cramming in three games including a friendly against wales which i just cannot see the point of unless there's some kind of television contractual reason to get well paid for it I can't see any point in the extra game he'd be much better off spending time on the training ground working with players I would have thought it does seem a bit of an odd choice I mean it's not as if you've got 90,000 people paying 20, 30 quid ahead at Wembley to watch it so it does seem an odd choice I must admit I mean in terms of reluctance I mean in our current COVID situation I can very much understand and uh, uh, compressed programme of matches I can very much understand why managers are reluctant to let players go but it's not new I mean we all remember Alex Ferguson coming with all sorts of reasons why he players shouldn't be playing for England this goes back quite a long time um, of course players generally want to play especially if it's competitive matches and if the team are doing well I suspect most England players will be happy to go though they might fancy ducking out the Wales game but because uh, England feels like they're in a good place at the moment. So it's a bit of a shame that we're in this situation where there is so much to be trying to squeeze into the season. Well, I, I, I will say I, I'm in a bit of a bind with this one. I, I, I was actually going to save this for my uh, for, for, the, for the final toss, but I think it's, it's a fair question to raise now. I mean, I think ultimately, even, even if, the, if the Wales game doesn't have fans at it, they are they are playing three fixtures because of broadcasting contracts and because of the money that's coming in. And I, I was put to me by a few people in the game that the money from these international breaks has actually never been more important, uh, even for the FA, but but more, but more it's more important, obviously, for many smaller associations who need the cash that comes from these international fixtures basically to run the games in their countries. So from that point of view, it, it, these actually are quite important. Yeah, at the same, but the, other, the flip side of that is... Well, A, there's the question over just as suddenly we're seeing spikes in COVID again across Europe and the world, whether, whether we should be having players so readily going across international borders in that way. Well, I suppose that's a bigger question. But secondly, there is, I think, a more interesting debate to be had. And I suppose this is particularly relevant given we've just had a, a cascade of League Cup games in that given the congested calendar and all the questions that brings, should football have not tried to figure out a bit more of a balance to the calendar is this one season where we really need to play every single fixture possible because it's going to have a profound effect in the game not least on players and what one the financial concerns notwithstanding it it does feel as if I don't want to call it greed, actually, in this case. I think I think there are some necessities to it beyond just getting in cash because the, the cash that comes in has a greater purpose for once but I, I think maybe a bit more consideration. They, they, they could have come up with a, maybe a slightly more sophisticated calendar rather than this situation where if, you, if you're a top international, you could very feasibly have a game every every three days in a way we've never seen in football before because there's no space for any sort of break. And, I, and I, just on that, I'm on a bit of a tangent now, but if you look at the, if you, if you, if you look at the Napoli case in Italy yesterday where 
they didn't travel to Juventus because two players had had uh, tested positive after they played Genoa and Genoa had 17 cases. Now, I think I th- I'm, I'm not entirely sure of the details as now, but I think one of, one of the complications was the local authorities didn't go or wouldn't let them go. Now, obviously, that, that, that's a case like that different from country to country, but it does show if, uh, as the kind of spread of coronavirus continues again, we could have this situation thrown up in more and more countries, which while it might necessarily bring a halt to the game again, it could create a lot of postponements, which you know is going to have a huge knock-on effect on a calendar, which doesn't really have the space for rearranged games. Yeah, look at what's happening in rugby with uh, the game being cancelled, the Northampton Saints, yeah, you know, being, mm. yeah, you know, lo- losing the game for no fault of their own. Yeah, one one aspect of this international break is that it will increase the attention on the women's game. You know, it's, it's you you cover that, Glenn, for the magazine. There are two games on BT Sport this weekend, Spurs against Man United, uh, followed uh, by Chelsea against Manchester City, last season's top two. Mm. Let's look, if we could, uh, at the at both games in isolation. Alex Morgan at Spurs, obviously a strategic investment by the club looking at the US market, only six months since giving birth. Do you expect it to play against United? And what about United? You've got players there like Tobin Heath and, and Kristen Press who've come in. It should be a good spectacle, shouldn't it? It should be. I mean, I don't expect Morgan to play much, if at all. I mean, she may play midweek. They've got a Continental Cup game against um, well, one of the second divisions, one of the women's championship teams, uh, London. And that's a good opportunity to give her 15 minutes. She last played a full 90 minutes in last summer's World Cup final. Her last goal was the one against England with the tea drinking celebration. So she, she's been out for a long, long time, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you know, she's also given birth in the meantime, back in May, so uh, relatively recently. And she's very much aware, uh, we spoke to her on Friday, how you know, she's saying she thought she was doing OK in training, then she got into a training session rather than training on her own, and she realised just how much off the pace she was, you know, even you know, things like losing your touch and the sharpness. So, uh, I think she may start having little cameo roles, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Chelsea, um, Spurs obviously very keen to get her on the pitch from a marketing point of view and she's obviously keen to get games as soon as possible yeah, depending on how things go though I mean she's currently signed till December but the scope to change the deal to extend the deal um, depending on how COVID happens and develops in the States and when the American teams start playing again I wouldn't be surprised to see her here for the entire season because um, in America there seems no sign that this will be under control you know certainly by next spring so she may not stay in the entire season Spurs also taking the view that yeah yeah, both of them looking looking long term throughout the season. Yeah, you know, by the end of the season she should be playing regularly. You know, there may be an FA Cup run or something like that to be done. So, lots of possibilities. Uh, in terms of the two Americans at United, they both came on on the weekend and looked good. Both could have scored, in fact. And United begin to put together quite a useful looking side there again. It's almost a matter of how to get all those attacking talents in together. But they are looking a good side. You certainly fancy United on, on that game. Look at the other game. That will be much more significant in terms of the title. Both teams have had slightly uh, s- slow starts uh, as they try and integrate new players. I mean, there's been quite a few new players coming. You massive, obviously signed four big players, two England internationals, two Americans. Chelsea have got this array, as I mentioned earlier, of attacking talents. It's surprised when they got beaten by Everton. City were held at home by Brighton. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Traditionally, in the WSL, these matches decide the title. Uh, the ones between the, the three sides, which may not try to make a four sides, um, along with Arsenal. Uh, so it's a quite an important uh, set of games. Yeah. Well, we'll pull everything together now, uh, Megs. Have you managed to get your head around another um, comment? <laughs> I suppose the big one, we, we touched on this earlier, but, and while I think you're right as regards a certain sympathy for Parrish's comments when you look at... You know the how owner, some owner, owners in the championship are wealthier than Crystal Palace. It's really it, that's I think that's a very narrow way to focus on the issue, though, because this is about really the overall health of the game. And, look, and I mean, I, I, I'm I was made very uncomfortable by this constant analogy comparing football football clubs to supermarkets, or even Sean Dyche going on about hedge funds. We shouldn't be. It's it's actually scandalous that we're even looking at football as a normal business in that way. It isn't. And football clubs are only too quick to talk about their community value and their work in the community when it suits them. Well, this is, I mean, having a healthy pyramid and a, a, an overall game where everyone's feeding into 
is all part of that. It's it's all part of what should be the community role of football clubs because this is I mean this this is what the game is really about. It's about representation of communities and for football clubs and it's why it's why the supermarket analogy is totally misplaced and it really annoys me because for for any single football club to succeed it needs to have clubs to play against they're all in a healthy state for there to be interesting matches and something to actually get behind and I mean that's a very crude and basic way of putting it but it's true and it's kind of bubbling away but it does feel where we're at a point where there needs to be a big conversation and almost a big kind of strategic plan about what and Glenn touched on this as regards to the American model, but we have to re- think about what the game is actually going to look like in this country. Because then there's not just the kind of... Obviously, on one side, there's the moral argument on whether the Premier League and the big clubs should fund the rest of the game. But then a connected question is, and I think this is absolutely key, whether the Premier League even needs the, even needs the pyramid. Because there is that sense that it's... It potentially doesn't, and I think we need a big conversation about that. And I, I would lean towards yeah, whether whether it needs it or not. That football, and particularly the wealthier side of football, that has benefited from the popularity of the game as a whole in general, and really kind of, I don't want to say leached, but because the foot, because the Premier League has become so all consuming, it has basically taken away support and interest from low from lower levels of the game, and I think it, it, it does a bit of the game. A bit back in that sense. Mm, yeah, I, I actually think probably there might be the reverse effect where people will actually return to their local clubs, their local non-league clubs even. What about you, uh, Glenn? Well, I'm tempted to rant on about the absurdity of this government sanctioning events with 3,000 plus at the 5,000 capacity indoors Royal Albert Hall, but not allowing socially distant crowds with a far smaller percentage capacity or even a similar size at football matches outdoors. But I know you're going to do that, so I'll talk instead about the handball Ferrari. Remember the handball Ferrari? It was only last week and we were told it was ruining football. Well, yes, the current interpretation, even tweet, is deeply unsatisfactory. Is it really ruining football? Apart from last weekend's, well, this weekend's matches suggesting it hasn't, um, I can think of at least a dozen things that are ruining football to a much greater extent, starting with weak governance, dodgy owners, racism, sexism, rapacious agents, corruption, lack of grassroots investment, the abuse culture on social media, the concentration of power and wealth at the top of the pyramid, ticket prices, dissent, and pushy touchline parents. So my wish is for managers, pundits, fans, and everyone else to save their outrage for issues which really damage the game. And the big one at the moment is the COVID ban on spectators, which to touch on Miguel's force is damaging communities as well as clubs. Yeah, well, I'd make no apology for returning to that theme you know, football needs fans more than ever, and those fans must never be exploited or patronised again. In return, they can return the favour by acting in unison. That goes against the grain with some, since football is such a tribal game. But surely it's time for a concerted lobbying campaign in support of a staged, sensible return to having limited crowds. It's illogical, as Glenn said, to deny football the rights others have been offered. Now, I know the demands on the public purse are limitless at the moment, and the clubs are facing huge problems. But this will allow football to help itself. Do you agree? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Glenn and Miguel, and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>